good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. There you go. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to be reading and thinking about verses 19 to 25. But before we do that, I do want to say, especially if you're visiting with us today, welcome. Uh, We are really grateful for your time and your presence. And my prayer for you today is that you would experience the warm embrace of our Savior and Lord through the arms of his body, this particular expression at Zion Presbyterian Church. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's God's word. And what we've just read is God's very word. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me, would you? Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning? Would you open our eyes and enable us to see you by faith, to behold you in your beauty? Would you enable us to taste and see that you're good? Teach us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as some of you know, um, we are starting the new year by focusing on a couple of themes, the theme of rest and the theme of waiting. And as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that we really haven't defined what we mean by rest. And so I did a little thinking, I did a little research, I looked in my Bible, and I think I've come to a place, an understanding of of what we're talking about, and I want to share it with you. The very first place we hear of rest mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God has just finished his work of creation, and we read, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. As I read through the creation account over and over and over, something jumped out at me. 
Every day of creation is punctuated with these words. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. But when you get to day seven, there is no, and there was evening, and there was morning the seventh day. And as I meditated on that, it occurred to me, this is what we were created for. We were created to live in an eternal day seven. We were created to live in a state of eternal holy rest. And that actually tells us something very important about rest. Because typically when we think about rest, we think that rest means inactivity. Rest means sitting on the couch, putting your your legs up on, on a stool and doing nothing. But beloved, rest is not inactivity. Biblical rest can't be at inactivity because on day six, God gives man and woman dominion over the sea and over all of, all of the land. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what is biblical rest? It occurred to me that you get a glimpse of it in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because we're told that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. Earlier in chapter 2, we are told that after God creates Eve, they are both naked and were unashamed. I think those are pictures of rest. Biblical rest isn't inactivity. Rather, it's a state of being in perfect, soul-satisfying, face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. Where you are known to the core of your being and you are loved with the eternal love by the one who is defined as love. Rest is being swept up into the divine dance, the love experienced between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Rest is swimming in the ocean of God's eternal and incomprehensible love. Rest is looking on the Father's face and seeing nothing but enraptured, absolute delight as he gazes upon you. The picture that comes to mind when I think about rest is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture, but the picture illustrates rest. The son is on his knees at his father's feet, his head pressed against his father's chest. The father's arms are gently wrapped around his son's shoulders and he pulls him as close as he possibly can. I I think that is a picture 
of rest. Or the psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 131. He says, oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous to me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Again, I think that's a picture of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about rest. This is what we were created for. And of course, if you turn to the final pages of your Bible, what you realize is you were not only created for rest, but you are destined for rest. That is where the Lord is taking us. When you read through Revelation 21 and 22, what you realize is that the seed of rest that is planted in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 has grown into a forest of rest that covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. The fact of the matter, though, is this. Pictures fail us. If you've ever stood on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon, you know that no picture can ever capture the experience of looking into that great natural wonder of the earth. And beloved, it's the same when it comes to biblical rest. All of the superlatives in all of the languages of the earth cannot adequately capture what is meant by the Bible's use of rest. Perhaps that's why the Apostle Paul writes, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The rest of God, it's incomprehensible. But experientially, I think Augustine beautifully describes what it's like. He says to God in prayer, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. You can't put it in words, but you know it's true. We were created for rest. We were redeemed for rest. And what is amazing about what the author of the Hebrews tells us in our passage this morning is that by virtue of Jesus' death on the cross and his high priestly now, we now, we now have Edenic access to the very presence of God. Let me say that again. We now have Edenic access into the very presence of God. Scholars have pointed out that both the tabernacle and the temple later are described using Edenic imagery. What I mean is that the construction and the colors and the temple and the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple are echoes of the garden. They are reflections of Eden where God dwells with his people and his people dwell with him. And of course what 
we, what we were reminded of earlier when Mark read from Leviticus 16 is that because of sin, because of rebellion, we lost that free Edenic access to the very face of God. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, we, re- we read that there is that no one may see the face of the Lord and live. God is holy, 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 and we are not. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That's why it was only the high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, and that after very detailed preparation, purification, and sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice. And yet, what we see in our passage is that because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, and because he is our perfect high priest, Not only can he enter into the holy place, but as we were reminded in our call to confession this morning, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Or as our author puts it, as the author puts it here in our passage, because of Jesus' priestly work as our perfect sacrifice, and as our great high priest, we can now confidently enter into the holy place where God is seated on his throne, where we can know experientially the rest for which we were created and redeemed. It's astonishing. And yet, I would suggest to you that what these words describe is more often foreign, more often than not, foreign to our experience and unbelievable to our imaginations. And you have to ask the question, why? Well, think for a minute about our passage. How do you think the author of Hebrews would answer that question? Why is it that that this this notion of experiencing the rest of God in here and now is is so foreign to our experience? I think the author would say this. I think he would say, well, it's because you, you lack the assurance of your faith. You struggle with guilty consciences. You you waver and you fluctuate under the conviction of sin. You question God whether or not he would be willing and or able to forgive you and make you his own. The fact is this, we we are sinners. And it's not just that we're sinners. We love our sin. We love what it promises. We love it. And the result is this. We wonder in our heart of hearts, have we moved beyond the reach of God's grace? Is our sin more powerful than the cleansing blood of Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself the question, am I really a believer? 
Am I really a Christian? Have you ever been tempted because of your ongoing struggle or lack thereof with sin to, to throw in the towel and to walk away from Jesus? Have you, have you ever thought Christianity might work for you, but it doesn't seem to be working for me? Beloved, that's why the author of Hebrews is writing these words. He knows that we believe, and yet at the same time we struggle with unbelief. And so what the author does here is he gives us some gospel directions. In fact, he gives us three gospel directions, and those three gospel directions can be summed up in three words, faith, hope, and love. Direction number one, look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure blood. What's the author telling us? The author is telling us this, that in spite of the fact that we continue to struggle with an evil conscience, in spite of the fact that, that we, we know that we need to be washed, we need to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, we can have full assurance of faith. In his book, After You Believe, N.T. Wright defines faith as the settled, unwavering trust in the one God whom we have come to know in Jesus Christ. What does our passage tell us about the one true God whom we've come to know in Jesus Christ? Verses 19 to 21. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice who is also our great high priest. That it's by his blood that our consciences are sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water so that we with our spiritually skinned knees and bruised elbows might have unfettered access to God now. As we were reminded in our assurance of pardon, this Jesus, our great high priest, can save us to the uttermost because he ever lives to intercede for us. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that through the high priestly ministry of Jesus, through his blood, we now can have the full assurance of faith that our sins have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west, that our sins have been thrown into the sea and that they will never be dredged up again. Or as the author puts it in verse 22, that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. This is why the Apostle Paul can declare in the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what are we to do? How do, we, how do we nurture this confidence in faith? He tells us, draw near. Draw near. Draw near in this context means worship. To draw near is to taste and see that God is good. 
to draw near is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Why is the author's first direction for us to worship? It's because worship is both the fruit or the fire and the fruit of faith. Worship of the living and true God reorders the loves of our hearts. Drawing near to the throne of grace recalibrates our hearts. Beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus remagnetizes our hearts. The author of Hebrews is saying that because of our continuing struggle with sin, we need to stoke the fires of faith in our hearts through worship. Public worship, which is at least part of the reason why the author says in verse 25, let us not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. Public worship, gathered worship, corporate worship, we are desperate for it, we need it. And of course, regular private worship, which also works to the end of stoking the fires of faith. Why is worship so important, particularly in the face of the ongoing struggle with sin? Well, sin does one of two things. It either drives you into the shadows or it draws you to Jesus. And when it draws you to Jesus, you can freely admit with the Apostle Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the fruit of worship. It's a life of transparency and vulnerability. It's a, it's a life of honesty and humility. And it's a life of confidence that you were never so bad that you were beyond the reach of God's grace. That's direction one. Direction one is to cultivate the full assurance of faith through worship. Direction number two, look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is hope? Again, to quote N.T. Wright, hope is the settled, unwavering confidence that God will not leave us or forsake us, but will always have more in store for us than we can ask or think. The call to hope is the reminder that our salvation is yet to be fully realized. As John puts it in 1 John 3, we are not who we will be when we see Jesus. It also means that the best is yet to come. What does this mean for you and for me now? It means this. It means that in the same way that faith leads to worship, hope leads to waiting. And that's unbelievably important for you to keep in mind. Because we live in a valley between two peaks. On the one side, we have the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side, on the other peak, 
We have the return of Jesus when he will finally make all things new. When we will see him fully face to face and finally and fully be free from sin and its consequences. When we will finally and fully be what we were created and redeemed to be. But right now, we live between those two peaks in the valley. And living in the valley is hard. We see brokenness, and we see pain, and we see suffering, and and we see oppression, and we see what looks like wrong constantly triumphing over right, and we see death. It's all around us. And if we're honest, we see all of that stuff in us as well. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? No doubt, like many of us in this room this morning, that's exactly how at least some of the people who first heard this letter read felt. And the author wants to encourage them, and he he wants to encourage us. Look at what he says at the end of verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful What is the source of your encouragement? What is the confession of your hope? It is not the strength of your faith. It is the strength of your faithful Savior. It is the promises of God. It is not your promises to be better next time. The promise of grace. God has promised that he saves us by grace through faith. God has promised to complete the good work that he has begun in us. God in the person of Jesus has promised that his grace is sufficient. And God has promised that he will never leave or forsake us. This is our hope in the valley. And our direction is to wait with confidence and with patience. No one put it better than Martin Luther in his hymn that's based on Psalm 130. He writes, I won't sing, Therefore my trust is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. On him my soul shall rest, his word uphold my fainting spirit. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort and my sweet support. I wait for it with patience. I wait for it with patience. Direction one, cultivate a faith that is fired by and bears the fruit of worship. Direction two, Wait with a certain hope that looks with confidence and patience to the God of promise. Direction three. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, if Faith calls us to worship, and if hope calls us to wait, then love calls us to one 
another. But here's the question. Why? (laughs) Well, I would suggest to you there are at least three reasons. Reason number one. We are created in the image of God to image of God. We talked about this a couple of Saturdays ago. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has lived in perfect community, perfect fellowship for all eternity. And what that means is that relationship is, 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 is woven into the very fabric of reality. But more than that, what this means is that in order for us to be who we were created and redeemed to be, we must be in relationship. We can't image God exhaustively by ourselves. We were created for relationship, not just with God, but with one another as well. Second reason. Think about how the Bible describes believers. 1 Corinthians 12. Paul calls us the body of Christ, not the bodies of Christ. Ephesians 5. Paul describes us as The bride of Christ, not the brides of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, we are called the household of God, not the households of God. Again, Ephesians 2, we are called a holy temple to the Lord, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, not the holy temples of the Lord. Beloved, when Christ calls you to himself, he calls you to one another. And while those callings are not the same thing, they are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. The last reason is God in his generosity and grace has given us each other to encourage us. To stir us up. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in his book, Life Together. He writes, the Christian needs another Christian who will speak God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. Now listen to these words. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Now I know that sounds a little weird. What do you mean the Christ in my heart is weaker than the Christ in your heart? I think what Bonhoeffer is getting at is that there are days... When we waver, there are days when we doubt. There are days where we wonder, can we actually go on? And what we need in those moments is we need our brothers and sisters to preach the gospel to us, to encourage us. That God's grace really is sufficient to to remind us that when Jesus said it is finished, it really is finished. When Jesus promised, I will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. 
He will never leave you or forsake you. Maybe an illustration will help. Do you remember what happened when the newly freed Israelites encountered the Amalekites after crossing through the Red Sea, but before they got to Mount Sinai? The Amalekites come out to wage war against the Israelites. Joshua leads the Israelites in the battle. Moses, Aaron, and Hur climb up on top of a hill to oversee the battle. And as long as Moses has his arms raised in the air, the Israelites are winning. But try this sometime. Hold your arms in the air. You might be able to do it for 10 minutes. You might be able to do it for hours. But at some point, your arms are going to be, begin to flag. And when Moses' arms began to drop, the Israelites began to lose and the Amalekites began to win. So what happens? Aaron and Hur grab, each one of them grab one of Moses' arms. And they hold his arms up with him and for him. And the Israelites triumph over the Amalekites. Beloved, that, I believe, is what Bonhoeffer is talking about. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. I need you. And you need me. I can't make it by myself, and neither can you. When you see me wandering and wavering, I need you to call me out. And I need you to call me back. God has gifted you with gifts that I don't have, but I desperately need. And he's gifted me with gifts for you as well. We need one another. I'll conclude with this. The author of the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews knows that we live in a valley between the peaks of Christ's two advents. He knows we live in what theologians call the already not yet. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and because of who he is as our great high priest, we can now enter into the holy place, the very throne room of God, the rest of God. At the same time, as the author of Hebrews writes just a few chapters earlier, we are to strive to enter that rest. Sounds strange. How do you do that? It's what we've been talking about. It's as together we look away from ourselves and gaze on the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. It's calling each other to faith in the finished work of Christ, who is our great high priest. And it's encouraging each other of our hope, not just in the promises of God, but in the God of promise. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me.
Father, we, we are unbelievably grateful that you have made a way for us to come into your presence. That you have made a way for us like little children to crawl up into your lap. We thank you that because of Jesus we know that your your gaze upon us is one of adoration, one of love, one of enraptured delight. We confess that we believe and yet we don't believe. We ask that you would fan into flame our faith and that you would enable us to walk according to your ways as laid out here in Hebrews 10, 19, 25. We bless you and we thank you. We are so grateful now, Lord, that we can come to this table. It's your table. It's the dinner table. It's the family table. Thank you that we can take this wine and this bread knowing that it is a foretaste of the meal that we will celebrate with you in eternity, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Son. Praise you, Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.